Toto, uh, thank you for the very warm welcome. It's good to be back here. And man, I just love making you do actual Anglican things. That's really great. It was giving me vibes of um, Lord Farquaad from Shrek, you know. The <laughs> I feel like he had, should have had a scroll or something that he was reading from. Um, but it's, it is really good to be back here with you all this morning. Uh, and it's been, it's been a while since I've been here. So um, I feel like lots has happened since I have been last here. Uh, firstly, we had a baby. This is Paige, another baby. We have we have two now. Uh, she's around twelve weeks old, and she's lovely and little and chubby. Uh, and I'm discovering that with your second child, it actually doubles the amount of children that you have. Um, it's a wee hot math tip for you there, um, which is double the love, but also double the sleep deprivation and nappies as well. But we're having a really good time with the girls, and um, the, yeah, they're wonderful, joyful daughters. I went on a strictly working trip to the UK um, to present some of my research, uh, and I was working so hard there, and there was a heat wave there, and uh, the only place to get a drink was from this whiskey distillery, uh, in rural Scotland, uh, about an hour and a half outside of Edinburgh, and you wouldn't believe it, but they only had 20-year-old cask drinks, single malt whiskey, so um, reluctantly I partook in uh, some of that. Uh, but probably the most important thing that's happened since I was here last is this. Now, like any humble Crusader supporter, only briefly in every sermon uh, reflects on the achievements of the greatest professional sporting franchise in any sport ever. Uh, I won't harp on about this, uh, but what really has kept me up at night is the thought of having to show my face in this church uh, without the Crusaders being super rugby champions uh, and the inordinate amount of smugness that I would encounter uh, from you all, but um, I get to move back to Christchurch while on top, so um, that's a good one for me. Um, anyway, enough about that. If for whatever reason you were going to go to the Mediterranean Sea just off the Italian uh, Riviera between Camogli and Portofino and you were to go a few hundred metres offshore, you would find this the ocean. Not very exciting. But if you were to put on scuba gear and then scuba dive, should have become a graphic designer. If you were to put on scuba gear and then scuba dive 52 feet down or 17 metres down, you would find this. A giant bronze statue called um, of Jesus called Christ the Abyss. Now, this is very obviously a very extraordinary statue in a very extraordinary place. But what I really love about the statue is actually the journey that you go on to see this statue. The only way to encounter this Jesus is downward. This Jesus, the way to this Jesus is down. And that's what I want to talk to us about this morning, this idea that the way of Jesus is a way of downward mobility. And our passage today suggests two things. It suggests that Jesus is both the end goal, but also the life pattern for the disciples. One Gospel of John scholar observes that Jesus proclaims himself as both the way and in one sense the end or goal for the disciples, not only does this mean that one can get to the Father and to heaven only by means of the Son, it appears to also mean that Jesus' life pattern, including being faithful unto death, is the way that believers must follow. 
And it's this life pattern of the Jesus way that I want to delve into today. Uh, Because the route that Jesus takes through his life is not a movement of climbing up, but of descending downward and self-emptying. And if we take our journeys in following Jesus uh, seriously, this should really impact our life trajectory and the way we posture ourselves and direct ourselves in this life. But before we talk about Jesus' downward mobility, I want to talk about culture's upward mobility. And I would argue that the narrative of upward mobility is one of the most significant factors shaping our lives in the West. So much of what we do in our lives is subconsciously driven by the desire to keep moving up invisible ladders, to be moving on to the bigger and the better, and to be constantly pursuing metaphorically dangled societal carrots. Theologian Henry Nouwen uh, agrees and comments this. Our lives in this technological and highly competitive society are characterized by a pervasive drive for upward mobility. It's difficult for us even to imagine ourselves outside of this upwardly mobile lifestyle. Our whole way of living is structured around climbing the ladder of success and making it to the top. Our very sense of vitality is dependent upon being part of the upward pull and upon the joy provided by the rewards given on the way up. Our parents, teachers, and friends impress upon us from the moment we are able to pick up the cues that it is our holy task to make it in this world. To be a real man or woman is to show that one can not only survive the long competitive struggle for success, but also to come out victorious. And I think this is true. I think that one of our most powerful motivators is this unspoken motivator of upward mobility. We're often driven to progress in our careers, to achieve financial success, to travel more, to gain more qualifications, to buy or build bigger, not because we actually need these things, but because we're desperate to be validated by those around us. And we can become so consumed by these things that our lives become exhaustingly orientated and exclusively centered around our own interests, above all and occasionally against the interests of others, to be more, become more, earn more, do more. And if we're really honest about ourselves, we're captivated and often consumed about thinking about the next thing. And the next thing is always bigger and better. This isn't helped by the fact that our very own brains seem to encourage and reward this kind of behavior. Author Will Storr observes that researchers find our reward systems are activated most when we achieve relative rather than absolute rewards. We're designed to feel best not when we get more, but when we get more than those around us. Our brains, uh, for whatever reason, seem to reward us when we get ahead, even at the expense of others. And from a very young age, we begin to see ourselves and what we have in relation to those around us. And we begin to measure ourselves against each other. It doesn't take long to start to feel the upward pull. Uh, The other day I was having a beer with uh, Reverend Sam Hinare, and my two-year-old daughter, Piper, began to have a meltdown because uh, she supposedly wanted to have a beer as well. Now, it might be the case that Piper had somehow developed a taste for corona. And if that is the case, I have some questions for her Christian preschool. Uh, but more likely, she's begun to see what she has or doesn't have in relation to others. This has already begun for her. And so many of our anxieties are related to the relentless pursuit of mobility, of being more recognized and loved through our achievements. 
The philosopher Alain Dubaton calls this status anxiety. And he describes status anxiety as a worry so pernicious as to be capable of ruining extended stretches of our lives, that we are in danger of failing to conform to the ideals of success laid down by our society, and that we may, as a result, be stripped of dignity and respect, a worry that we are currently occupying too low a rung or about to fall to a lower one. And what I found striking in reading Dubaton is uh, this phrase, capable of ruining extended stretches of our lives. Because when I think about my life, and if I'm really honest about it, uh, large portions of my life have been taken up by the stress of establishing and elevating my own personal status in the eyes of others. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. But uh, to return to Nouwen, he also says this, the story of our salvation stands radically over and against the philosophy of upward mobility. The great paradox which scripture reveals to us is is that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The word of God came down to us and lived among among us as a slave. The divine way is indeed the downward way. The way of Jesus runs completely counter to upward mobility. It's actually diametrically opposed to it. Jesus doesn't want you to climb the ladder. He wants you to get off the ladder. He wants you to throw it away. The way, uh, the way of Jesus is a life headed completely in the opposite direction of everyone else, defined not by the love of self, but by the ruthlessly sacrificial love of others. We see this most clearly, uh, or more clearly than ever, in Philippians 2. Uh, listen for the downward mobility of Jesus in this passage, which is being um, pitched as a model for our own lives as well. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look to, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way of Jesus isn't just a wee spiritual add-on to our mostly secular lives. The way of Jesus isn't divine therapy to help us when we feel a bit sad. The way of Jesus isn't just a hobby made up of eclectic spiritual activities. The way of Jesus is found through the Spirit and following his steps and living a life lived for the sake of others. And through the person and power of Christ, this is where we find life and truth as well. The way of Jesus challenges us not just to live slightly different lives, but to literally head in the opposite direction of those in our culture. What does this look like? Great question. Three quick examples of downward mobility. Uh, so this is Bev. Um, she uh, passed away uh, we were back in 2015, I think. Uh, and she is one of the most exceptional humans I've ever met. Uh, I met Bev when she worked with my wife, Sarah, in residential youth mental health care. And she had been working with mentally ill young people for decades and decades. She had actually committed her life to it. And she was still doing it uh, in her 70s, only stopping uh, a few months 
uh, before she died. And she was actually um, working with young people as she had cancer. Uh, and she had loved young people and had committed her life to them, and they loved her, although they didn't love her driving. She lived for young people, not just in her job, but in her personal life as well. In fact, over the duration of her life, her and her husband had, um, had fostered literally hundreds of young people in their home. Bev used to spend long weekends driving to the West Coast, staying in motel rooms, and tending to the graves of people she knew were, who were buried there. She would uh, be collecting jars and buying fake flowers and set them in plaster of Paris so they'd last until the next time she visited. Her funeral was absolutely massive. She had touched the lives of so many people, but she never did it for that. She did it because she loved Jesus, she was committed to the Jesus way of living, and lived a life committed to the interests and needs of others. Bev's life was a life defined by downward mobility. This is the Addington Coffee Co-op Cafe. A few decades ago in Christchurch, a bunch of Christians decided not to upgrade their houses, but to downgrade them. They wanted to uh, get off the ladder and do something different and meaningful. So they collectively used all their profits and pitched in the thousands of dollars that they'd saved and bought an old uh, mechanics shop and converted it into uh, a cafe called the Addington Coffee Co-op. Uh, but they didn't just want to make a good flat white. They say, uh, and they quote, uh, they exist solely for others. And so they used this cafe as a social enterprise and started an apparel business in Kolkata that has rescued and employed thousands of young women out of prostitution, as well as putting money back into their local community. This is a community defined by downward mobility. And what I love about this community in particular is how intelligent they are about it. They didn't just sell their stuff and give it to the poor, which is obviously a very admirable thing to do, uh, but instead they created an economic ecosystem of justice where a significant amount of underprivileged lives can be impacted. Uh, this last week at Laidlaw College, where I work, or Bible College of New Zealand, um, as it used to be known, began its move to a new campus. And uh, this Wednesday, as part of this, they had a ceremony to remove and relocate some plaques that they have in the garden called Martyrs Memorial Grove. Uh, now, ashamedly, I've actually never heard of these plaques, um, but there are five of them. One for each student who had graduated Laidlaw College and has been killed for their faith, overseas while doing missionary work. Can you imagine this? Studying theology, uh, then ministering in a country that will kill you for your faith, and then actually dying for your faith. And this word martyr means witness, and the incredibly brave humans were witnessing in the most powerful way, the downward way of Jesus, laying down their lives that others might hear or experience the good news of Jesus. Now, what I don't want you to do is hear these stories and feel guilty. And I don't think that's what Jesus wants, uh, wants you to do as well. But when we hear these stories and we consider the claim that Jesus is the way, it raises some questions for us, right? Which way am I going? Where's my life going? What's its general direction? What's its emphasis? Is the emphasis my needs or is the emphasis the needs of others? 
Is my life defined by pursuing my own interests or upward mobility? Is my life defined by the pursuit of my, uh, the interests of others or downward mobility, the way of Jesus? Now, we need all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. We need lawyers and business owners and philosophers and teachings. What does it look like to have your life directed downward, not upward, in your context? To consider the needs and interests of others in whatever place you find yourself. Is it putting the rent down instead of up? Is it sharing power and opportunities with others rather than acquiring them for yourself? Is it going the extra mile for a struggling student? Is it paying someone else's debt? Is it spending time with someone who no one wants to spend time with, such as a Blues fan? Just got to get them all out of my system. But what I don't want to do this morning is to close the door on what Jesus might be prompting you to do. Maybe... Jesus is actually prompting you to do something quite different in your life. And I'm not telling you to uh, quit your job and to sell your house, but I'm not telling you not to. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not telling you to completely change your social circle to involve more marginalized people, but I'm not telling you not to. I'm not telling you to get together with your friends and to start a social enterprise that benefits the least of these, but I'm not telling you not to. I'm not telling you to foster a child, um, but I'm not telling you not to. I'm not telling you to smuggle Bibles into China, but I'm not telling you not to. And I think too often we rule out the option that Jesus might be nudging or even pushing for us to do something quite radical with our lives. Are you open to this? Because this is the way that we've all signed on to. This is the Jesus way. And you know, so many people, um, a lot of my friends uh, included, are leaving the church, uh, if you hadn't noticed, <laughs> uh, because they don't see the point. They don't see how the Jesus way makes a difference in their lives. And in some ways, I get it. Sometimes expressions of Christianity are, are flaccid, domesticated, suburban social clubs not St. Augustine's, of course. Uh, but what I worry about is that leaders like me haven't been brave enough and have severely underpitched what the Jesus way actually consists of. And the way of Jesus involves sacrifice. It involves self-emptying. It involves other prioritization. It involves love. It involves grace. But somehow... It's here that life and truth are found. just want to finish uh, with a final thought um, from Mark Skandret. Um, he says this, Where will practicing the Jesus way take us? To the place where it has always taken disciples since the beginning, toward the fault line of love in our time, to suffering, persecution, misunderstanding and death. This is where his footsteps steps lead, and to peace and hope beyond the struggles of this age. The greater question is not whether we are willing to suffer, but will we risk being fully alive? Are you willing to risk being fully alive? Because the, the way of life, the Jesus way of life, is downward and everyone else is heading upward. Let's pray.